everybody this morning in the Mission Church. Welcome. How many are glad to be in God's house today? Thank God you made it. Amen. Why don't you go ahead and greet somebody before you're seated, shake a couple hands, tell somebody God bless you. Welcome to those of you who are joining us at Mission Church Online. We're so glad that you're with us today to worship the Lord and, and hear the word of God. Amen. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Amen. Well, a quick announcement. Uh, we had our annual business meeting this past uh, Friday night, e even though we had some, uh, some weather, uh, but we still had uh, a quorum, so we were able to have our meeting, and uh, I wanted to announce to you that we did have an election for two new trustees, uh, our brother Matt Spare and our sister Gisela Robeck. God bless you, and welcome to the Board of Trustees. And uh, we also want to say thank you to uh, our brother Pete D'Andriano and Steve Corazine, who are completing two consecutive terms on uh, the Board of Trustees. So thank you, Pete, and thank you to Steve as well. Amen. Take your Bibles and go to the book of Revelation. We started a series there uh, a couple of weeks ago. While you're turning, I want to remind the men. Do we have any men in the room today? Any men? We got any? Any? All right, we got a couple of men. So we have a men's retreat coming up. If you haven't signed up yet, uh, you need to do that. It's going to be on April 1st and 2nd, and uh, you can go out into the lobby there at the information desk, get some information. You can sign up there, or you can go to uh, Mission Church online and uh, find a way to sign up there. So we want all the men to gather together for the retreat on April 1st and 2nd. Amen? Men? Amen, ladies? <laughs> you got to push that guy out the door, all right? Okay. Praise the Lord. So we are in uh, the book of Revelation, as I mentioned, and uh, we're continuing our series today on the seven letters to the seven churches of the book of Revelation. Last week, we talked about the uh, letter to the church at Smyrna, and today we are looking at the church at Pergamos. Pergamos, yes. Let me just get to my notes here. All right. The letter to the church at Pergamos. Everybody say Pergamos. All right. So we're going to be reading in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through, through 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write these things, says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works. And where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas, my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Verse 14. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes... 
I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name, written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Father, we ask for your help today, Lord, that you would, Lord, you would put your anointing upon us, Lord, in the, both the preaching of the word and receiving the word preached, that, Lord, you would help us to understand what it is that you are saying to not just this ancient church in Pergamos, but, Lord, the church today, the mission church, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. So the church at Pergamos was a good church. But it had some issues, and Jesus said, church, you need to address the issues. Now, the first thing that stands out in this letter, which I think needs to be mentioned, is that Jesus said the church in Pergamos was where Satan's throne is, the place where Satan dwells. Now, for the first century Christian living in that time, in that city, the term Satan's throne held significant meaning because in Pergamos there was an enormous pagan altar which was shaped like a throne. It was called the altar of Zeus and it was one of the most popular attractions in the ancient world there in the city of Pergamos. One historical record says that the altar of Zeus was one of the most famous altars in the world. It stood on a ledge which jutted out from the hillside 800 feet up. It was 90 feet square and 20 feet high. All day long, this altar smoked with the smoke of countless sacrifices to Olympian Zeus. It dominated the city. The eye of anyone in Pergamos was drawn to it. No one could live there and not see this altar. So when Christ called Pergamos the place of Satan's throne, he was saying that this altar was actually not for the worship of Zeus, because we all know that Zeus is a figment of imagination. Zeus doesn't exist. What Jesus was saying, that as the people are worshiping and offering sacrifice, they're actually worshiping Satan himself. And what's interesting to note is that even though this was the city where Jesus says Satan dwells, the place of Satan's throne, Jesus did not tell all of the believers to clear out as soon as they could. You notice that? He didn't tell them to run away or to get out of the city. And I've had people who've come to me from time to time and they'll say, they'll say, Pastor, the place where I work is such a terrible environment, or the place where I live is such a hard place. I'm not going to mention New York. And so many people will say, I just can't wait to get out of this place. I just can't wait to get to a place where it's easier to serve God, right? But isn't it interesting to see that Jesus didn't tell the believers in Pergamos to run to another state. Apologies to those of you on Mission Church Online. But he didn't tell them to do that, did he? He told them, stay where I have planted you and shine the light for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? So if you're living in Pergamos, you feel like you're in Pergamos and and there's an altar to Satan all around you, guess what? You're not supposed to get out. You're not supposed to run. You're supposed to stand fast and be a witness for Jesus Christ. And this is one of the things that Jesus praised about 
this church in Pergamos. They stood firm. Verse 13, you held fast to my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas, my faithful martyr, was killed among you where Satan dwells. Antipas was actually the bishop of, of, of Pergamos. He was like the pastor there. And four years before this letter was written and delivered to the church in A.D. 92, there was a confrontation where Antipas, the pastor, the bishop, was, was required, was being demanded that he would offer sacrifice at the altar of Zeus, this huge pagan altar there. And he refused, of course, to stand before this altar, and he refused to conform and capitulate. And as a result, history tells us that Antipas, Antipas was martyred in AD 92. Actually, what history says is that he was put into a hollowed out, life-sized image of a bull made from brass. And a fire was lit under this brass bull in which Antipas was stuffed. And the fire caused the metal brazen bull to heat up and it roasted the pastor to death. And Jesus said, Antipas, my faithful martyr, was killed among you where Satan dwells. And not just Antipas. When Jesus wrote to the church there, Pergamos, he acknowledged that there were many, there were many who didn't run away, who didn't leave Pergamos, who didn't bow, but stood fast and refused to worship at the altar, this huge, gigantic altar. They refused to do it. But despite all that, in verse 14, he said, I have a few things against you. There are some issues there in the church. What issues? Verse 14. He said, you have there in the church those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. What did Jesus say? Hate. Which thing I hate. The issue for the church at Pergamos was not that they were committing idolatry or sexual immorality, which is bad enough. The issue was that there were people in the church, even teachers, trying to justify it, trying to rationalize it. There were people in that church who held to a particular belief. And that belief, instead of strengthening people in their walk with God and building them spiritually and urging them to take a stand for the gospel, what these people were believing and what they were teaching was actually causing people to stumble and was pulling them away from Christ. Now to understand the doctrine of Balaam and, and how this works, you, you have to go back to the Old Testament, to the story of Balaam. We're not going to read the whole thing, obviously. It's found in Numbers 23, 24, and 25. Basically, the children of Israel were on their way to the promised land through the wilderness, and, and on their way, they passed through the region known as Moab. The king of Moab, his name was Balak, 
wanted to stop them because it was such a, a huge mass of people and they would consume the land wherever they went. So he wanted to stop them. So he hired this famous prophet whose name was Balaam. He hired Balaam to prophesy against them, to curse them. And, and Balak believed that if Balaam would curse them, then, then the blessings of God that was on these people of Israel would be, would be canceled. And so Balaam agreed to do that. He took the money. And, and what happened, though, is that each time Balaam opened his mouth to curse the Israelites, God caused him to speak blessings over the Israelites, right? And so Balak got upset with Balaam and said, hey, I paid you good money. You're not doing what I... We had a contract. We had agreement, right? Now, what we, what we come to learn as we read on through the Bible is that Balaam did want to serve Balak because he had Moab in his heart. He had greed in his heart. And he wanted to fulfill the terms of his contract, right? So when the cursing Israel did not work, Numbers 31 verse 16 tells us that Balaam advised King Balak how to get God to curse the Israelites. He gave Balak counsel and he said, what you need to do is entice the men of Israel with the women of Moab. It's what's called a stumbling block. Everybody say stumbling block. That's what he was saying. He was saying, you need to do something that will cause Israel to stumble, to disobey God, to offend God, and then God will curse them. And that's exactly what, what Balak tried to do by the counsel of Balaam. Right? He sent the women, these, these, uh, these pagan women, the Moabite women, he sent them there amongst the men of Israel, and the men of Israel fell into relations with the women, and they were drawn into the idolatry, the paganism of these women, and then God started to curse the people of Israel, and a, pla a plague was sent among the people. So essentially, here's, this is what the doctrine of Balaam is. It's a doctrine that lures the people of God into sin. It is a doctrine that causes people to stumble and causes them to cancel out the blessings of God over their lives. This becomes even clearer when we understand verse 15. Jesus said, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I, I hate. So the doctrine of, of Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans are, are tethered together. They're, they're put in tandem, right? Now, Scripture doesn't specifically tell us who the Nicolaitans were, but, but consensus among early church writings is that the Nicolaitans were a heretical group. They were a group that that taught heresy in the church. And they basically taught that you could be a Christian while simultaneously participating in pagan practices. That's really what their, their doctrine boiled down to. They're believed to have originated from a teacher whose name was Nicolaus. And Nicolaus taught that because you're a Christian... And because you're under grace, you're no longer under the law, and therefore you can never be found guilty of breaking the law. So if you're in Christ, things like idolatry, sexual promiscuity, adultery, anything in the law that the law says is sin is covered by grace. 
And in fact, if you sin, Nicolaus taught and the Nicolaitans taught, that if you sin, God doesn't even see you do it because all he sees is the righteousness of Christ on you. This was the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And this was very appealing to the Christians who lived in Pergamos because understand something, the Christians who lived there in that city were constantly exposed to idolatry and sexual immorality. They would regularly be invited to pagan feasts and pagan celebrations by family members, by friends, by co-workers, right? And in those feasts, they would, they would have a time where they would serve food, that meat that had been offered to pagan gods, Right? And a portion of that meat would be reserved by the offerer to bring to his family, and they would all celebrate and eat that meat together, and they would honor the God that they worshipped. The people who were living in, in Pergamos, the Christians, not only were they, were the, the, were they invited to this, these pagan celebrations, but they were continuously tempted by a sexually charged Roman culture. If you study history You'll see in Roman culture, in Greek Roman culture, that promiscuity and, and perverted sexuality is all throughout their religion, all throughout their entertainment, all throughout their culture. And I'm talking about promiscuity and adultery and homosexuality and even pedophilia. It permeated the culture. And because, now listen, because of what was being taught in the church, what was being allowed to be propagated in the church, Christians were being pulled into paganism and they were being pulled into sexual immorality all the time thinking that they were still Christian and right with God. The false teachers, the Nicolaitans, they would say to the Christians, it's okay. You're not under the law, you're under grace. You can go to the temples, you can go to the homes of your family members and eat the food sacrificed to idols. Grace covers you. You're sanctified, you're justified, you're forgiven and free. You don't need to separate from the world. You don't need to offend your family or your friends. You don't need to put your life at risk like Antipas did, go ahead, offer a few doves to the gods, burn some incense to the emperor, eat the food sacrificed with fellowship with the sexually immoral. Don't worry, it's okay. Grace covers it all. And what was happening is the Christians were being pulled back into idolatry and the world. This was the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, and Christ said, I hate it, I hate it, I hate it. We need to understand that God's word is clear on the church's fellowship with the sinful practices, the immoral practices of the world. 2 Corinthians 6.14, Paul wrote, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. Therefore, verse 17, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. Now, there's a verse we don't hear quoted too much today in churches. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11 
Paul wrote, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. The Word of God is very clear on our standing in the world. That we are to have no fellowship and no participation in the immorality, the idolatry, or the sexuality, or the perversion of this world. Amen, Pastor Greg. Amen. Right? Now, I realize that to win lost people to Christ in this world, we must build relationships, and we must love people, and we must be part of their lives. I get that. But we understand that the Word of God has boundaries. Everybody say boundaries. There are some places that, God, that we as God's people have no business being at. There are some people that we as God's people have no business fellowshipping with, and I mean in intimate, close communion ways. What does that mean? That means that our attempts to reach and relate to people should never be a reason for compromise. As we encounter the issues of this culture, sexuality, gender, cohabitation, abortion, atheism, we must be careful not to diminish the truths of God's Word or capitulate to the attitudes and the immorality that, that offends the Word of God and has destroyed countless lives. Are you hearing me today? Now, we know people are searching for answers in this world, but the answers that we give them must be true gospel and not the doctrine of Balaam that appeals to the flesh and just causes people to like us. We are hearing a gospel today that does just that. Similar to what happened in Pergamos. It's a doctrine that's called hypergrace. I don't know if you've heard of this. Hypergrace. Hypergrace. Right? Hypergrace teaches that because God's grace has forgiven all sin, past, present, and future, there's no need for a believer to repent or to confess their sin. It teaches that when God looks at believers, He sees only a holy and righteous people, and therefore we are not bound to biblical morality, and we're not accountable for sin. According to hypergrace, anyone who emphasizes personal holiness or calls to obedience is a moralist, a legalist, or a modern-day Pharisee. Sadly, the outcome of hypergrace is, as what's mentioned in Jude, verse 4, a perversion of grace into a license for immorality. And we're seeing it because this hypergrace is having an effect on the church today. You know, a recent poll conducted by the National Campaign to Prevent Teen and Unplanned Pregnancy revealed that over 80%, now listen to this, over 80% of evangelical singles, singles in the church, evangelicals, 18 to 29, are sexually active outside of marriage. 80%. We are seeing something in the church today which has been titled, the new Christian ethic. And it's not that Christians are renouncing their faith or forsaking God. It's that they believe that grace allows them the freedom to make sex a matter of personal conviction rather than an issue of biblical 
morality. And I want to be very clear on this point today that the issue of biblical morality and sexual purity is not a personal conviction that everyone decides for themselves. It is a biblical command. Biblical command. 1 Thessalonians 4 says, This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. Ephesians 5.3, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. 1 Corinthians 6.18, Paul says, Flee sexual immorality. The word in the Greek for sexual immorality is the word porneia. And porneia means any sexual activity between two individuals that are not united in a heterosexual marital union. Did you get that? It means that if you're sexually active and that the person you are sexually active with is not your husband or your wife, you are committing sexual immorality, and it is sin. Amen. Right? So with this teaching of hypergrace, we're seeing the same thing today as was happening in Pergamos. It's not only that people are committing idolatry and sexual immorality, which is bad enough, it's that there are people in the church, even teachers, trying to justify it and tell them it's okay, don't worry about all of that antiquated, archaic, biblical morality, let the Spirit lead you and God's grace will cover you. And what it was doing, instead of strengthening people in their walk with God, and this is what's happening today, instead of building people spiritually, we are causing people to stumble, the doctrine of Balaam, we are causing people to stumble and we're actually pulling them away from Christ. And this is why the closing words of Christ to this church in Pergamos are so relevant today. He says in verse 16, repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. That sounds pretty serious, doesn't it? That's pretty sobering. I'll fight against them. There will be conflict. There will be a disruption of the unity. There will be pressure. There will be a problem. I will fight against them with the sword of my, my mouth. This is the same two-edged sword that Jesus refers to having in the opening salutation. What he's saying is this, because we, we know that from Ephesians chapter 6, the description of the spiritual armor, that the sword of the Spirit is what? It's the Word of God. And so Jesus is saying to the church, He's saying you need to repent and you need to get back to My Word. Get back to My Word. Not personal opinions, Right? Not how you feel you want to be led, not subjective decisions, not cultural norms, not political correctness. Get back to my word. Not happy, feel good sermons, not motivational speeches, right? Not itching ears. Get back to my word. That's what he's calling the church to. And the leaders of the church, get back to my word. Preach the word. That's what Jesus is saying. Preach the word. So a couple of real quick 
closing thoughts. First, if we're going to get back to the word, it means doctrine matters. Everybody say doctrine matters. Any church, any preacher, any person who says, well, I don't get hung up on doctrine, run from that person. Just run from them, right? Timothy, Paul wrote to Timothy, take heed to yourself and to your doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this you will save yourself and those who hear you. Right? Anyone who thinks they shouldn't care about doctrine is showing their spiritual ignorance and their immaturity in the Word. Right? So if you ever go to a church and they say, well, we don't really get hung up on doctrine here, you need to just get up. Just get up. Okay? Gather all your stuff. Get your family. Get your kids and say, we're out of here. Amen? Right? Let me ask you a question. How many believe that Jesus is the divine Son of God? You know what that is? That's doctrine. How many believe that Jesus was the perfect sinless man who healed the sick and worked miracles? How many believe that? You know what that is? That's doctrine. How many believe that Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world? Anybody believe that? Sure. You know what that is? That's doctrine. How many believe that on the third day Jesus rose from the dead, ascended to the, to the heaven, to the second, the right hand of the Father, and now offers us the gift of eternal life? Anybody believe that? Guess what that is? That's doctrine. Take heed to yourself and to your doctrine and continue in them for you will save yourself and those who hear you. Jesus said, repent. Repent and get back to my word. Second real quick point. Resist error. Doctrine matters and resist error. It's interesting here that the church, now listen, the church, they were not condemned for teaching this doctrine, they were condemned for allowing people who were in the church to teach that doctrine. In other words, the church didn't necessarily, they didn't declare that they agreed with that doctrine, it didn't become a part of their doctrinal statement, it didn't become a part of their platform, but still they tolerated, right? They tolerated, they allowed, for the sake of what? keeping unity. We don't want to offend people. So they allowed people to pretty much teach whatever they wanted to teach for the sake of what? Unity. Let me just say this. It's better to be divided by truth than united in error. Jude said this, verse 3 and 4, Contend earnestly for the faith which was once delivered to the saints, for certain men have crept in, ungodly men, who turned the grace of our God into lewdness, lasciviousness, liberty to sin, right? And let's be clear, these false teachers in the church, they didn't walk in and make an announcement and say, okay, we're going to have a connect group this week, and it's going to be teaching the doctrine of Balaam. They didn't, they didn't announce a class to be held in the fellowship hall to say, for the next six weeks, we're going to study the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. That's not how it works. Deception does not just appear on the scene and say, here I am. I'm deception. I'm going to bankrupt your faith and ruin your soul. That's not how it works. The danger of false doctrine is that it's often wrapped up in truth. There's just enough truth wrapped into that false doctrine that it, that it looks legitimate, right? These false teachers, 
They were just people teaching, just people talking. But in their talking, they were twisting Scripture, taking Scripture out of context, using half Scriptures, not using the whole text, right? And they were bringing false doctrine into the church. Resist, resist error. And the final point I want to make real quick is this. Check the Word. Check the Word. Amen? That's why I say, when I get to the pulpit, did you bring your Bibles? Check me out. Make sure the pre- Don't think just because somebody stands up behind a pulpit and calls himself pastor, bishop, apostle, reverend, whatever, doctor, I don't, ca- I don't care what, I don't care how many degrees you have behind your name. All I care about is this. Are you going to open the word and preach the word? Amen? Not impressed by titles, yes? Not impressed by, I'm impressed by the word of God you're preaching and the anointing of the spirit on your life. That's what we, that's what we look for, Right? How does it measure against the Word of God? 2 Timothy 2.14, Do not strive about words to no profit to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and idle babblings. And I'll tell you, we've got a lot of idle babblings going on in pulpits today. For they will increase to what? To more ungodliness in the church. Why? Because it's a doctrine of Balaam, a doctrine of the Nicolaitans that's presenting a stumbling block, and rather than building people up spiritually, it's dragging them away from Christ. Amen? So when people want to come to you with something, it doesn't sound right. You ever been there? Someone tells you something? It's like, you're just kind of like, you know, that's called discernment. Right? And you just ask them, just show me chapter and verse. Right? I'm not interested in the dream you had last night. I want to see chapter and verse. I'm not interested in the word you have. I want to see chapter and verse. Amen? Right? Line it up. Now, I believe in the prophetic. I believe in the word of knowledge. I believe in the gifts of the Spirit. But it's all going to line up with what? The word of the word of God is the authority. Amen? And when you do that, you'll overcome. Let's stand together. Worship team can join me up here. Verse 17, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I'll give him some of the hidden manna to eat. You know what that is? That's the Word of God. The hidden manna to eat. And I'll give him a white stone, and on that new stone, a name written down, which no one knows except him who receives it. The hidden manna is God's Word to nourish us. The white stone. That was was a, a special gift that would be given to athletes who finished a race. And many times it was from a former athlete who won the race before them, and they would pass on this special white stone to honor them and respect them. And Jesus is saying, if you'll stand for my word, if you'll resist false doctrine, and you'll stand for my word, and don't run away from Pergamos, if you'll be a light there and stand on my word, hallelujah, I'll give you fresh manna in your life. I'll give you fresh manna in your family. I'll give you fresh manna in your household. And I'll give you a white stone, and you'll have a new name written down in glory. Hallelujah. Come on, let's give the Lord a praise. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness, God. Lord, I want to pray, God, that you'll help us, God. Lord, as we look at this letter to the church at Pergamos, God, we see how so many of these issues are reflected in the church today. And Lord, we pray that you'll give us discernment. Come on, lift up a hand to the Lord and just say, Lord, I need discernment, God. Deliver me from my own opinions, Lord. Deliver me from what I think and what I want, Lord God. And I pray you'll give me that ability to hear and to discern the spirit that's leading me through the word of God. Let us be a church. Let us be a people, Lord God. Hallelujah.
that loves doctrine, that resists error, and that Lord God will always check the word. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Can we just take a moment and worship? Come on, lift up a hand and just, just worship the Lord and just say, yes, God, help me to be faithful, God. I want to be faithful, Lord God. Even though I dwell in a place where Satan has a throne, even though I dwell in a place where the powers of darkness may rule, Lord God, I'm not running away. Lord, I'm going to stand firm. Lord, I'm going to stand firm, oh God, and shine the light of Christ, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Do it, Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord God. For those who need to go, we're going to dismiss you. Uh, some of you need to go get your kids. You're welcome to go ahead and go get your children. But if you want to linger and worship, we invite you to take your time. If you need prayer, we're going to invite you to come forward. And, and we have people that would love to pray with you, whatever your need may be. Amen. God bless you, church. Let's worship the Lord for a few moments.